Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Gennius Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for this coming Saturday, June 13th, 2020. Right now it is early Wednesday morning, June 10th, and we have our friend TruthVids here once again to help us address Charles Weissman's What About the Seedline Doctrine? And this is part 18 of this series. It's tentatively subtitled, The Children of Cain. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so so once again, uh, Charles Weissman's going to keep trying to put a wedge between descendants of Cain and the Jews. Uh, that seems to be his main point to separate them, even though he kind of half-assed admits it at times that they are, there is a link. Um, but even so, regardless, it's important to realize that the descendants of Cain are just everywhere in every non-white race. You know, today they're spread everywhere, whether it's China, the Arab world, the Indians, you know, the Mexicans, they are everywhere and they are in every society. But even so, all the non-white races are part of the whole serpent seed regardless. And I'd love to have seen what Weissman would have said to that uh, if he was still alive, if we could have challenged him. Right, Bill? Well, well right. I, I would l love to have that conversation with him, just not for his sake, but for the sake of all the um, the the... the clowns and so-called CI pastors over the years that have followed him because we've clearly, um, I, I don't think it, it, it's, um, that, that we left anything ambiguous. It, it's, we've clearly demonstrated Charles Weissman is a liar and, and that he, he wrote everything in his book because he had an agenda, but not because he had any care for the truth. And, and this next part, these next two pages, which we present here today, and we should get that far, I hope, but these next two pages, we, we will see that um, he, he, he doesn't add anything, really, of substance. He just makes a lot of emotionally-based claims and insistences. Where's the, he doesn't provide any scripture supporting his arguments, none, like... Last week, when we discussed the first murderer, he insisted and, and made up a, a narrative as to why the serpent was the first murderer and not Cain. And he didn't have one verse of scripture to support his narrative. He only insisted it's true because he said it's true, where we provided half a dozen scriptures that refute that narrative that he created. So I'm, I don't, I don't, yeah, it would be nice if, if he was still alive because then he could see his lies and what sort of fool he, he was, he would be confronted with that. And, and maybe that's fleshly of me wanting to do that. I don't even think that he was, um, legitimate anyway. I think that Michael's probably right, that he, he did indeed have that little bit of Jew in him that he wanted to cut his finger off and get rid of it. The tip of his finger off and get rid of it. He sure as hell acted like, all throughout this, he has acted like um, one of them and, and not a sincere seeker 
of truth in scripture. Instead, he created a whole series of sophisticated and deceitful arguments against two seed line. He claims there's no proof. Yeah, and... like you could see some of the older ones like Compare, they they were you could you could generally see they were seeking the truth and they they were conflicted and at times they would realize the truth. Right. And they weren't trying to cover it up. They were trying to really, you know, look look for the truth. Whilst Weisman's the opposite. He he kind of knows it, but then he tries to cover it up. You can very clearly see that when you uh, listen to them both. Right. Weisman's well. Oh, okay, we had Wesley Swift around the same time we had Compare. And Compare always sought to present scripture in support of his statements. He always did. Now, he wasn't always perfect, but none of us are. Compare was a true seeker who always cited scriptures at least once and, and sometimes two, three times, and, and usually a couple of times. And, and understood the importance of that in order to um, base your worldview and your doctrine on something solid, where Wesley Swift was just a talker. And a lot of times he, he confounded scripture and, and quoted things that were um, not scriptural, like the Kabbalah. Wesley Swift didn't do us any favors, I don't believe. He wasn't a scholar, and his he... he he claimed to be a scholar, or he had the appearances of a scholar, but he wasn't a scholar in the in in the um, in practice. A real scholar will make cross references and and be very tedious about making citations supporting everything he said. Swift never made citations. He so Weissman's argumentation might be effective against a Wesley Swift. But it's not effective against a Bertrand Compare. Compare had citations. Weissman doesn't have. He only cites one or two verses and argues against the the two seed line interpretation of those verses. And when he argues against them in the formulation of his arguments, he does not cite scripture. He only does like does like what Wesley Swift did and takes it for granted that you're going to believe him because it seems to make sense. But that's not enough. The scripture is our foundation. That's where we should build our worldview, in the scripture, not in somebody's emotional arguments. And that's all Weissman had. So here, once again, we shall continue with our series of presentations addressing Charles Weissman's What About the Seed Line Doctrine? And this is part 18 of our endeavor. We believe that all along the way, through each of the first 17 parts of this series, we have shown that Charles Weissman depended upon an ignorance of history, whether it was purposeful or not, coupled with many misinterpretations of passages seemingly intentional misreadings of passages, and even outright lies in order to convince his readers that two seed line teachings are in error. We last left off with Charles Weissman's claim that the, sea, the serpent of Eden was the first murderer, 
The murderer from the beginning mentioned by Christ in John chapter 8, verse 44. Making that claim, Weissman evidently hoped to decouple, to remove or separate interpretations of Matthew chapter 24, verses 34 and 35 from John 8, 44, which together, along with an understanding of the history of Judea over the decades leading up to the ministry of Christ, certainly do prove that he was indeed speaking to descendants of Cain. We have shown conclusively that within the biblical context, the serpent of Eden could not have been the first murderer, and that Cain alone was the first murderer. This is also plainly evident in the words of the Apostle John. In 1 John chapter 3, speaking within the context of Cain's having killed Abel, John wrote, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Cain and Abel were John's example, setting the context for that statement in First John 3.15. So Cain was the first murderer. In that same place that John informs us that Cain was of that wicked one, we see that Cain was the first murderer, as the serpent certainly was not Adam's brother, and certainly did not bring death into the world by causing Adam to sin, as we also explained. Adam was punished for hearkening to the voice of his wife, not the voice of the serpent. Adam was not deceived, and therefore... He alone was responsible for his sin. Furthermore, throughout Scripture, Abel and Cain were identified as brothers, and they were considered to be brothers. But even with that, we believe that Adam was not the true father of Cain. It is evident that Adam, having accepted Eve after her sin, became responsible for it and for what was produced from it. In that same manner, Joseph, after being instructed by the angel of God, accepted the Christ child when he found Mary to have been pregnant. So Christ became the heir of Joseph, being his first son. Abel, being Adam's son, there is no word for half-brother in Greek or Hebrew. So Abel was Cain's half-brother, but also his de facto brother since Adam had raised Cain as his own, just like Christ was a de facto son of Joseph of Nazareth, but Christians do understand that he was not the genetic son of Joseph of Nazareth. Yahshua Christ identified his adversaries as the offspring of Cain in John 8.44. Likewise, in Matthew chapter 23, he identified them as serpents 
and the children of vipers. In other words, the parents of his adversaries, whom Christ probably didn't even know personally, probably had never even met. The parents of his adversaries were also vipers and serpents. Then Christ told them that their race would be held liable for the blood of all the prophets, starting with Abel. In Genesis 3.15, as a result of the sin in the garden, the serpent was to have seed. And in the time of Christ, his adversaries were a race of serpents and vipers descended from Cain. So Cain, it must be. It must be Cain himself through whom the serpent had seed. One and one equal two every single time, without exception. <laughs> Yet concerning his denial that Cain was the first murderer, Charles Weissman, without having cited one verse in scripture to support his claims, obviously because such a verse does not exist, had made only cunning and emotional arguments in order to assert his claims. Regardless of how shrewdly they are constructed, if there is no valid scripture by which to support them, then they are the precepts of men and not of God. It is the word of Weissman and not of God. So, Charles Weissman is indeed a deceiver. Now Charles Weissman continues by talking about the peculiar curses upon the serpent and how they were fulfilled in Cain's descendants. He admits it. Here once again he begins by expressing our position for us, and although his expression is incomplete, and even if he is attempting to refute it, he is doing us a service. So we continue with this book and our answers to it as we are getting close to nearing the end of this fourth chapter. I don't know if you have anything you so would like Bill, to add. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, would Cain be a murderer because he was technically considered the brother of Abel and he killed his own brother? Or would it, it was just killing any Adamite, you know, considered murder, like if it's, um, you know, outside the law, because killing a non-Adamite is not murder, right? Well, well, in in the eyes of God, and and the law is set down by God, killing a non-Israelite isn't even murder. I, I mean, Moses killed the Egyptian, but Moses was never considered to be a murderer by God. He killed the Egyptian in defense of his own people. And that is what made Moses worthy of being called to the position for which he was called. However, his own people would have had him be a murderer. And that's how the scripture portrays it. His own people were willing to give him up to the Egyptians because he murdered the Egyptian. They did not at all appreciate what he did for them. They were mad at him for even attempting to resolve their dispute. They said, who made you a judge over us? So they despised Moses for killing the Egyptian. Even though Moses is killing the Egyptian, 
helped them. We see the same attitude in society today. Yeah, to us, Cain is a murderer, but to the Jews, he's probably a hero. That's what they would probably say. Right. And and Cain was a murderer because he killed what was perceptibly or or what what was imagined to be his own brother. And that's how it's described in Genesis chapter four. Even if he's a bastard, and and that doesn't mean that Adam and Eve knew he was a bastard. We can't tell from the way the scripture is written what Adam and Eve actually knew. We can see the way scripture is written and perceive what had happened in, in the language. But there's no, we don't have any proof that Adam knew that Cain was a bastard. None whatsoever. And the scripture still describes Cain as Abel's brother, even though we are confident that Cain was only Abel's half-brother. So Cain is a murderer. The scripture is written in a, in, in a way that we should learn the lesson. And, and the ancient Greeks understood the lesson, and I've quoted this before, and, and I believe it was um, Euripides who, who said that the, the bastard is, it may have been a Aeschylus, I always get them confounded, but they said that a bastard is forever an enemy to the true-born son. They got that lesson from somewhere. <laughs> it may not have been Genesis chapter 3, but there are other ancient Greek writings which tell me that it very well could have been Genesis chapter 3. So here we're going to continue with Charles Weissman and we are on page 39 of his book in chapter 4. And he says, The main thing we have available for identifying Cain's descendants is the nature of the curse which God placed upon him. And that's not true because Jesus Christ said that by their fruits you shall know them. Evidently, as we've also proven, Weissman was not a Christian. God said to Cain, this is Weissman, and thou art cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield to you her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall you be in the earth, citing Genesis chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Here we find that Cain would no longer be able to raise up crops from the earth as he had formerly done. This is Weissman's response to that scripture. He would not survive as a farmer or by an agrarian lifestyle. He would have to depend on other sources of food, on others. He would have to depend upon others for sources of food. I'm sorry. We also see that Cain would be a fugitive and a vagabond. He would not have a homeland of his own, but would be destined to be a wanderer in the earth. Since this curse would be passed on to Cain's descendants, they too would possess these cursed characteristics. It is true that the Jews of today possess both of these characteristics. They are not farmers and are not known to be good at agricultural endeavors, being typically city dwellers. 
Historically, they have been wanderers without a land of their own. On these grounds, there is cause to believe that the Jews of today possess some Canaanite blood. And we will stop here to address these statements. In Acts chapter 19, we have an account. And the language of Luke also connects the Judeans or Jews who denied Christ to the curse of Cain. And there we read in verse 11, we'll start with verse 11, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And I probably would have done a little better to read the Christogenian New Testament there, but that is the King James Version. In Acts chapter 19, the Greek word translated as vagabond means to move about. These vagabonds in Acts chapter 19 were the sons of Sceva or Skewus, a word which actually means utensils, who is described as an archirius. Archirius is the Greek word used to describe the high priest. Unfortunately, the scriptures do not always use the same names for such men as those which are recorded in histories, such as Flavius Josephus. In um, the last chapters of Acts, we read, in the, in the middle of Acts, we read of Agrippa, and that refers to Herod Agrippa I, who is usually called Agrippa in histories. And I, I'm sorry, in the middle chapter of Acts, he's not called Agrippa, he's only called Herod in Acts chapter 12, in um, an episode where he actually had arrested Peter, had killed, had put to death the Apostle James, James the Younger, and the son of Zebedee, John's brother, and he died in that same chapter. That He's only called Herod in Acts chapter 12, but he's really Herod Agrippa I. And most modern histories and the antiquities of Flavius Josephus don't refer to him generally as Herod. They refer to him generally as Agrippa. 
in order to distinguish him from other Herods. The Herod of the Gospel is Antipas, Herod Antipas. So the histories often refer to him as Antipas to distinguish him from his father, Herod the Great, and, and other Herods, like Herod Archelaus. So it gets confusing, but Herod in Acts chapter 12 is usually Agrippa in the histories, where the Agrippa of the end of the book of Acts, chapters 25, 26, 27 in there, that's Herod Agrippa II, and he's the son of this Herod from Acts chapter 12. So he's called Agrippa in Acts, and if you don't understand the um, history of Judea in the first century and the actual names of all these different Herods, it could get confusing. You could read the New Testament imagining that there was only one Herod, when in fact it's speaking about several different men. Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus, um, Herod Agrippa, and Herod Antipas, they were all different people, right? So in the scriptures, we see the skewus, but that doesn't mean that that is the name that we should look for this man in history because the apostles didn't always use the same names or versions of names that the historians use. It's, it's that simple. So a lot of people try to come up with other identifications for this skewers. The event which Luke describes here evidently took place towards the beginning of Paul's three-year sojourn in Ephesus, which, as we explained in our commentary on Acts chapter 20 several years ago, lasted from early 53 BC to early 56 AD. There was an Ananias, the son of Nedebaeus, who was said to be high priest at the time, and for 12 years, from 46 to 58. But as we explained often in our commentaries, men who held the office at one time retained the title, and there were several former high priests living at the time. From the time of Caiaphas, the high priest of the crucifixion of Christ, who left the office in 36 AD, he was actually ejected from it, to the time of this Ananias, there were seven other men who held the office. So this skewus could refer to any one of them. In any event, the seven sons of a notable priest were identified as vagabonds by the Apostle Luke. In Genesis chapter it 4... It sounds like... I'm sorry, go on. Oh, sorry. It go sounds on. like they were abusing their um, position, you know, going around saying, I'm the son of a high priest and using that to extort money out of people. Kind of like, you know, how the mafia bosses would send their people out to, um, you know, hustle people for money, you know, back in the day. Absolutely. And and um, if you read the pages of Flavius Josephus, and I actually um, use this as a sub-theme in one of my commentaries on the Gospel of John, and I explained it all there, the the gang of the high priests, the Sadducees. They operated as a gang, and they operated as a crime ring. The Sadducees had control of the office of high priest for most of the time from the death of the first Herod to the destruction of the temple. 
for at least half the time and probably more. And it was they who were sending out their their their, their kinsmen and, and their compatriots, whoever would align themselves with them. And Josephus write, wrote about this. They were actually stealing the tithes from the Levites and using it using those tithes to enrich themselves. And Christ had called them robbers and and explained how they raided widows' houses and and committed all these other crimes and how they were hypocrites. But Christ, even though he gave a general overview of their character, for instance, in Matthew chapter 23, he didn't go into the actual details. Josephus goes into the details. These people were criminals, and they were criminally minded, and they operated and used the office of high priest to make their organized criminal syndicate to, to make it look legitimate. They're doing the same thing today. They've done the same thing all throughout history. In Genesis chapter 4, the root of the Hebrew word translated as fugitive means to wander. The Hebrew word for vagabond means to move about. After his rejection, the same word that Luke used, the same, um, Luke used the Greek word, but it's the same meaning as Luke's Greek word in Acts chapter 19, to move about, a vagabond. After his rejection and his having killed Abel, Cain was sent out of the garden to the so-called land of Nod, which in Hebrew means land of wandering, using a slightly different word. While we read in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain had built a city, that does not necessarily mean that he or his descendants were able to hold on to it as a permanent settlement. Later, in the land of Canaan, they are living among other tribes. And this may not be the only branch of them. There were, there, there were very likely other branches of these people. This was certainly, we can't take it for granted that this was all of the Kenites. But later, in the land of Canaan, they are living among other tribes. And it is evident that even then, they were prone to wandering. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 29 in the Bible, as it is in versions such as the King James Version, which are based on the Jewish Masoretic text, we see a reference to the cities of the Kenites, which suggests that perhaps the descendants of Cain did have their own cities. However, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 29, both the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls have cities of the Kenizzites rather than cities of the Kenites. Furthermore, in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 10, the text also has cities of the Kenizzites where the fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls did not survive. And the King James Version has against the south of the Kenites. So perhaps that also should actually read, after the manner of the Septuagint, cities of the Kenizzites. And that's significant, and I'll explain why, even though it's not in my notes. 
the manuscripts which we have of the Septuagint, the oldest manuscripts, even though we esteem the Septuagint to date to 300 BC, or, or probably more like 250 BC, the oldest manuscripts we have of the Septuagint are the traditional codices, the Codex Alexandrinus, the Codex Sinaiticus. They didn't only contain New Testament books, they also contained what they were perceived at the time as Old Testament books. There were books in them that were perceived as Old Testament canon, which we don't have in our canon today. So they date to the 4th and 5th centuries from 400 AD through 600 AD, those oldest manuscripts of the Septuagint. The oldest manuscripts of the Jewish Masoretic text only date to the 9th century, or I'm sorry, to the 10th century AD. They're not as old as the oldest manuscripts of the Septuagint. They are the Codex Leningradus or Leningradensis. It, it's named after the city of Leningrad, where it was where where it's been stored. And that was originally, um, I believe it was St. Petersburg, wasn't it, Leningrad? It, it was one of those Russian cities. But now it's since the Bolshevik Revolution, it's known as Leningrad. I don't even know if it's still known as Leningrad, probably. But the Codex Leningradensis is named after that name because it belonged to Jews in Russia and has been kept in that that a, a particular place in Leningrad for who knows how how long now how many centuries or decades but the other manuscript from the 10th century is the Aleppo codex and parts of that turned up missing in 1947 even though it was at one time complete and we probably know what happened to that but that's besides the point the oldest Jewish manuscripts are from the 10th century and no earlier, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are also written in Hebrew, and they are, without doubt, no later than the 1st century. So, if the Dead Sea Scrolls are from the 1st century, they are the oldest copies of the Hebrew, and if 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 29 in the Dead Sea Scrolls, agrees with the Septuagint, then that is most likely the original reading. We can't expect that the Masoretic text is perfect. The Masoretic text was actually um, formalized by rabbis in the medieval period when they collected all the manuscripts they could get their hands on and homogenized them. They decided what the best reading should be. Medieval Jews did that to their Masoretic texts, to their Hebrew Old Testament. And, and they destroyed all the manuscripts that disagreed with their opinions so that they could have conformance. But who knows what it was that they were really conforming to. Now it's obvious that some of the scriptures are corrupt long before that, and Jeremiah the prophet tells us that some of the scriptures were corrupted before his time in 600 BC. But we can't, if, if um, the Dead Sea Scrolls agree with the Septuagint, 
I don't need another witness as to what the original reading should be. I would read 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 29, and 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 10, to read cities of the Kenizzites, not Kenites. And once it is accepted that the Masoretic text is wrong on these passages, that the word should be Kenizzites rather than Kenites, it is realized that the Kenites had no cities of their own which are mentioned in Scripture. So they were always wandering and dwelling among other tribes. They are found among the, Kenite, the Canaanites. They're found among the Canaanites in Genesis chapter 15, among the Moabites in Numbers chapter 24, among the Ammonites in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and as scribes in Judah in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, where it is apparent that those Kenites had come from those Kenites, so there were other branches of the Kenites. Those Kenites had come from Hamath. Hamath is a city in northern Syria, which would later be the northern extent of David's empire. Now at the top of page 40 of his book, Weissman seems to want to discredit the connection, which he has admitted to by naming another group of wanderers, the gypsies. But he cannot help but to mention the evidence of connections between Jews and gypsies. Or at least in passing. Yeah, it's funny that. Bill, I was just going to say that, um, you know, it's obvious that people who have observed the behavior of Jews, that they never can have their own city because they need somebody to live off of. Even the artificial state of Israel, it's, it only exists because every white nation pays tribute to it. It's the only way that it can thrive by living off the rest of the world. And uh, many learned people have observed this behavior and commented on it. Like, um, didn't um, Benjamin Franklin, he said something like, they are vampires and vampires cannot live on other vampires. They cannot live amongst themselves. They must live among Christians and others who did not belong to their race. So even he observed that. Well, well, right. And and I don't know about the providence of Franklin's statement, but it is definitely true whether he said it or not. And, and it's historically evident that the Jews as a people, as we know them, and they're certainly not the Israelites of the Old Testament or Judah, but the Jews have always been nothing but parasites on other nations and races that they they could never establish a homeland, a nation of their own, which is um, self-sufficient and self-contained. Where whites have done that all throughout history, white people of what we call European heritage, but we're not really from Europe, what we've done that all throughout history, no matter where we went, and even against the odds, because we all know that Australia was what was first. Australia is a barren wasteland, and, and it's full of all sorts of um, natural adversaries. That the, the, the fauna in Australia it is um, incredibly hostile to, to man, but yet the Australians without much help from the British Empire, 
the Australians had built a, a wonderful nation on their own. And, and a lot of them were only um, former prisoners who were dumped there when, when Australia was considered a penal colony. And, and they built a, a, a wonderful nation. So that, that right there is, is, and they are self-sufficient and they do have their own farming against the, the, the odds. The, the, um, the blacks in Africa could never do it without help from white men. And, and the Australians did it on their own, which shows that we are the creators of civilization. That, that is probably, um, aside from North America, the, the geographical challenges in the Midwest, in Canada, um, Australia, I think, is the best example of a race of white men who, against all common sense, because Australia is in it, most of the continent is just a desert, who, against all common sense, can create something wonderful out of nothing and contrary to nature. Where in, in Palestine, as you said, these Jews in Palestine today, they have one of the highest incomes per capita of any other nation, but they can only survive or, or they claim to require billions of dollars from every white nation on earth, everyone in Europe, at every, at every um, white nation on earth pays tribute to the Jews. And it's incredible. And if, if that tribute was cut off, they would probably cease to exist immediately. They would all leave because the, the gravy train would be over for them. They'd all leave. They'd have to leave. And it wouldn't be um, military reasons why they had to leave. It would be because they can't survive without bleeding off of other people, period. So the whole state of Israel and Palestine is artificial. And if it weren't for that, um, that constant feeding that they get, that, that constant refreshment they get from, from all these other nations, that they would be out of there in a minute. They'd all be in New York and London and Frankfurt. They'd go back to the cities of Europe where they could once again be parasites because that's all they are. Yeah, and it's amazing. It's the same with uh, all, all the other races. Um, every country that they're in, they have you know the most amazing climates and natural resources available to them. Uh, you know, you mentioned South Africa. Um, that, that white nation was producing 75% of the food of like the entire continent, you know, it, I mean, South Africa is nothing compared to the, you know, sheer size and resources available, which is well, amazing. Right. But even Zimbabwe, when Zimbabwe was Rhodesia, right, I believe when it was managed by whites, when white farmers owned all the farms and white farmers managed the economy, it was the it, it was an exporter of food. Every year, year after year, it exported more food than it consumed. And ever since um, Mugabe took all the farms from the white man, and he took them by force, by compulsion, and turned them over to blacks, Zimbabwe has suddenly become dependent 
on, and it happened like within a year, they became dependent on food aid from outside the country. So they became, they, they became a, a um, welfare state, a, a state that required the welfare of, of other nations in order to survive, a welfare-dependent state, I should say. So what happened? Uh, of course, asking that, just showing um, the average people in the street the statistics right out of the textbooks and, and they wouldn't believe that it was because of the change in farm ownership. They would deny it. They would do everything they could to deny it. Oh, the white men, they, they didn't train the, the blacks correctly. They, they didn't. Well, who trained the white men? <laughs> okay, that, that's a digression that we could go on for a while, but it's incredible. And it's the same here in, in the American South, what, where the... Um, Black sharecroppers could never really make anything of their farms. And they'll blame racism, but the fact is that they're just a bunch of lazy niggers that can't run a farm because they don't have the in intelligence and the organizational skills. It's that simple. And, and that they can't blame racism in, in Zimbabwe, especially now that they've had 10 years of, of aid and, and help. I think it's been about 10 years since the farms were taken from the whites. I, I'm, I mean, I might be off a little bit. I don't really keep up on those things. <laughs> Continuing with um, Charles Weissman and, and his connections between Jews and gypsies, he says, and, and he has a typo here, but it's his typo. There is another group of people which also possess these characteristics, that being the gypsies. They do not live, and he has another typo, typo. They do not live agrarian lifestyles, but rather are known for trading, selling and merchandising trinkets and worthless goods. They have been vagabonds in the earth, never having their own nation. One author on the subject of gypsies stated, Regarding the gypsies, some researchers have not hesitated to see them as the cursed descendants of Cain. The texts of Genesis in particular emphasize the curse put upon the brother of Abel, quite rightly evoking the birth of a nomad people driven by the unfavorable winds of fate. And there, Weissman is citing a book titled The Gypsies by Jean-Paul Clébert, published in London in 1963. Weissman then responds to that. Some writers, he loves that some writers comment, right? some researchers, some writers. Some writers have also pointed out a connection between gypsies and Jews in that some of their racial background and characteristics are similar. Wow. When I was a child, my father was a house painter, and sometimes he got called to paint houses for gypsies. And of course, he took the work. He needed the work. And they would always love these bright red colors. They wanted 
white ceilings and white woodwork, glossy and bright red walls. And they loved um, brass, brass candlesticks, brass fixtures, shiny, shiny. Um, it looked like gold, right? And, and all over the place. And they loved that stuff. And that's how they painted all their walls. We're always bright red. And tell me that doesn't <laughs> evoke images of Edom, which means red, right? <laughs> in New Jersey, in, in the 70s through the mid-90s, I was able to observe many gypsies. We had gypsies living on a, down the street from us on the avenue. They always lived in like a storefront. That's where gypsies lived. They didn't live in houses. They lived mostly in storefronts. And they, they would use the front end of the store for um, tarot card reading and, and, and crystal balls and stuff like that. And the back end that they would all sleep in. So we had gypsies all over the place. And I, I got to meet some of them up close and personal through, through my father's trade. The women set themselves up as necromancers and mystics. And they sell seances or palm or tarot card readings to susceptible and superstitious Gentile matrons. In other words, old white women. And I used to see these old widows go into these gypsies' tarot readings. And, and they wanted to know about their, their, their kids, their parents, especially their dead husbands, and, and they were very superstitious and prone to being financially exploited. So that's what gypsy women do. And at the same time, the men run rackets aimed at making easy money. They pretend to be contractors. They extract down payments from elderly homeowners. And then they never show up to work. They run gambling operations. They fence stolen property. They scam welfare offices and churches. They do anything to avoid having to actually labor and make an honest living. 300 years after emancipation in Europe, the gypsies still live after the same manner of the medieval Jews, who did the same thing throughout medieval Europe. The word gypsy is considered a pejorative. They call themselves Romani or Roma. And Romanians, who were plagued by gypsies for centuries, take offense to that name because it is commonly and mistakenly associated with them. But the names are said to have another origin not related to Romania or Romans, but to some feature of their own language I don't even want to get into, right? The gypsies speak a language that has a lot of common words with Sanskrit, but neither is language any indication of race, as other wandering tribes, such as Jews, also often change their languages. In fact, the gypsies, who are not properly Indians, are believed to have originated in India, and there were also many Jews in India, even before the Christian era, so-called Cochin Jews, C-O-C-H-I-N, Cochin Jews, Cochin Jews, claimed to have been in India from the time of Solomon, which is unlikely. They were first mentioned in Western writings in the 12th century AD. Their language also changed to a derivative hybrid of the 
language of the Dravidian Indians of the South, whom they lived among and mingled with. Further north, the Jews of Nagar Kohl claimed to have been in India since the first century, but links to the Apostle Thomas are certainly dubious. Other settlements in India date to no earlier than the Spanish Inquisition. The trade routes from Babylon had been followed to as far as India by Alexander the Great. So there has been ample opportunity for the seed of Cain to extend itself into India. Those trade routes are a lot older than Alexander the Great, but they have been well known and actually well guarded since his time. Alexander the Great left fortresses of Greeks all along those trade routes to protect them so that he could control trade in and out of India. That's probably why they killed him when he got to Babylon. And of course, Alexander the Great, after um, getting as far as the Indus River and even supposedly losing a battle to the Indians, I don't know if, if that's apocryphal or not, but he had established forts all along the trade routes through um, modern-day Afghanistan and all the way to the Indus River. And he had guarded those routes, but when he got back to Babylon, he was probably poisoned. He died in Babylon. And I would bet that's why, because he wanted to control the trade routes, but the Jews in Babylon had controlled them before him. That's my opinion. I can't really prove that, but I would bet that that's the truth. In any event, there has been ample opportunity for the seed of Cain to extend itself into India. Whether or not the gypsies can be derived directly from Jews, but I believe they are. I can't prove it, but I certainly believe they are. I don't know if you have any comments. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty well known that um, as soon as gypsies move in your area, the crime rate goes up straight away. I mean, I mean it, it, many people could testify that, that people's houses start getting broken into, cars start to go missing, uh, shops start to get robbed. And they don't even buy property. They just move into a park and basically set up home there. And, of course, the Jews have made laws to protect them. So there's nothing you can do about it. So, so it's like um, it, it's like the Sadducees and, and the Pharisees. <laughs> it, it's, it's one Jewish crime ring helping out another Jewish crime ring, basically. Yeah, they just lower down the food chain, right? Like vultures compared to rats, basically. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, next Weissman turns to an alternate definition of the word Kenite and uses that to confuse the issue that there are descendants of Cain identified in later scriptures. So this whole end of this chapter, these last few pages of Weissman's chapter, as far as I'm concerned, only present arguments where he sought to confuse the issues and confound the issues. But if you really examine the scriptures and investigate um, 
why people were certain, called by certain terms, why those terms were used, the context in which they were used. There is no confusion. So he says on page 40, C-line advocates also refer to the descendants of Cain by the term Kenite, which appears in the Old Testament. Two different words are translated as Kenite or Kenites. One is the Hebrew word Cain. That's the actual name. It means the name of the first child. Also, a place in Palestine, and we will get to that, and of an oriental tribe, Cain or Kenites, citing the Hebrew Chaldee lexicon found in Strong's Concordance. This is the same word for Cain in use for Cain in Genesis 4. It also appears as Kenite in Numbers chapter 24, verses 20, verse 22, which some say could be read as Cain, and in Judges 4.11. Both verses refer to the Kenite, and that's true, but it's not true. Similarly, the children of Israel are called both by Israelites in the plural and by Israel, where the singular form is understood collectively of all the descendants of Jacob as Israel. Where Cain is mentioned in this context, such as in Numbers chapter 24, which Weissman cited, verse 22, it helps to establish with certainty that references to a tribe of the Kenites are indeed references to various of the descendants of Cain. But here Weissman is slightly dishonest in defining the Hebrew word for Cain. He omitted the part where Strong had said that this word is the same as 7013 with a play upon the affinity to another word, 7069. And I'm only using Strong's Strong's numbers to identify these words. With only a few exceptions, every Hebrew name is also a word with an identifiable definition. When you see um, Cain or Adam, let's take Adam as an example. I believe in Strong's Concordance, Adam occupies numbers 118, 119, 120, and 121, at least. And it's not four different words. It's the rabbis of the medieval period who added the vowel points to the Hebrew in order to attempt to identify the words separately by their parts of speech. The word Adam could be a noun. It could be an adjective. It can be a general term for man, or it could be a proper name, as it is for the first Adam. So the rabbis had added different vowel points to each form of grammar. And when Strong's made his concordance, he identified the words according to those vowel points and separated them so that he would have a separate Strong's number for each part of grammar. That's why the same word can have 
four different strong numbers, but it's really the same word if you look at the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, such as the manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where the vowel points did not exist. They were an invention of the Jews five, six hundred years later. So people get confused by Strong's Concordance, but 7013 and 7014 are the same word, Cain, even if they have two different Strong's numbers. You can't say they're different words because they have two different Strong's numbers. That's not true. So where Cain is mentioned in this context in Numbers chapter 24, it draws a direct connection with, to, from the Kenites to the Cain of Genesis chapter 4. But here Weissman is dishonest in defining the word for Cain because he admitted that part of um, where Strong identified this word with the same, with the name of Cain in 7013, with the play upon the affinity to 7069. And I'm going to explain that. Every Hebrew word is identifiable, has a, a, a real word, and, and there's only a few exceptions to that. So they all mean something. And for Cain, 7013 is that word. And Strong's defines 7013 as being from another word, 6969, in the sense of fixity, and it means a lance or a spear. The word at 79, at, at, I'm sorry, the word at 6969 is a verb which means to strike. The word with the affinity, which Strong mentioned, 7069 is a verb meaning to create or to procure. So, in the sense of creating or procuring, the word Kenite also means a smith, which we will get to. The affinity that, Strong's, that Strong refers to is in the words of Eve, where she said, I have gotten a man and called him Cain. So there is a wordplay in the Hebrew original Hebrew language between the name Cain, which is Kayin, Q-A-Y-I-N, as Strong's transliterated it, and the verb to create or to get, to procure, which is Kana, Q-A-N-A-H. And they're sound alike words, right? So I have gotten a man, Kana, and his name is Cain, Cain, right? That they're kind of close, closely spelled and phonetically related words. So now we should keep this. We should keep this in mind as we continue with Weissman, finding ourselves at the top of the last page in this chapter, because we are also going to address. We're going to address Weissman's. Um, Judges for eleven connection a little later. You were saying, Bill, do you think um to strike that comes that came from Cain, you know, killing Abel, where he struck, you know, must have killed him by hitting him. That maybe that's where <coughs> the meaning came from. Well, people well, use that later to Cain someone. Well, we we are forced to consider the fact that the name came before the actual action. And if we look at all the Hebrew names through the scripture, whether it be in Genesis or in the um, portions of scripture which are contemporary to 
the writers like um, Joshua Judges, Deuteronomy, the names are very often prophetic of aspects of the person's life. So Cain must have had the name before he actually undertook such an action. And perhaps Eve gave him that name, called his name Cain, or Adam called his name Cain, because she believed she had gotten a man. Now, from where she got it, as we've explained earlier in the series, is a matter of debate because that portion of the verse is corrupt. And we went through all the different ancient readings of it, such as in Arjun's Hexapla. So from where she got it, we can only imagine. But she believed she had acquired or gotten a man. Or maybe, because the word kana can also mean to create, maybe she said she created a man with a lord, which is possible, with an angel, which is possible. I don't imagine she'd say she had created a man with God, but we know that there is a corruption in that verse, as we explained at length earlier in a series. So I'm repeating myself. Now, the name must have preceded the action of striking, but in that aspect, it was indeed prophetic of what Cain would ultimately do, and he killed his brother. So Strong notes the affinity. And it certainly is there, without doubt. So we should keep this in mind, and, and we'll address the connection that Weissman made to Judges 4.11 as we proceed. First he says, and, and next he says on page 41, the other word translated as Kenite is Kini, 7017, which is derived from and related to 7014 and refers to one who is of the tribe of Cain, who is called a Kenite. As Strong's also explains in his definition at 7017, the term Kenite is a patronym, just like Israelite. However, Weissman also neglected to include that part of Strong's definition. So now, continuing with Weissman for one more short couple of sentences, the Kenites and this is a huge lie, and we will prove it. The Kenites were friendly to the Israelites. Their nation was destroyed by Amorites. Their nation was destroyed by Amorites. And the survivors were dispersed among the Amalekites. When Saul was sent to destroy the Amalekites, the Kenites were spared and allowed to depart due to the kindness they showed to Israel. And this is, that whole paragraph is just bullshit. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Yahweh instructs Saul, now go and smite Amalek and destroy utterly all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Yet Saul, as it's explained in that chapter, Saul took it upon himself to warn the Kenites who were dwelling among the Amalekites. He warned them to get out of there. Then, rather than destroying the Amalekites completely, Saul spared their king and at least many of their beasts, their farm animals. 
So while the word of Yahweh made no explicit mention of Kenites in the instructions which he gave to Saul concerning the Amalekites, or in reference to Saul's sin, Saul was indeed punished and lost his kingdom because of that same event. For his disobedience to God in these very acts, he was told by Samuel, by Samuel that he had been rejected as king. Later, when Saul was finally slain after having been wounded in battle, as it is explained in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it was at the hands of an Amalekite, something which was certainly an ironic aspect of his punishment. Weissman has no basis to say that the Kenites were friendly to the Israelites. Yahweh knew that the Kenites were dwelling among the Amalekites. He must have. He's God, right? But Saul innovated and chose to warn them, and the reason for his doing so is not given. Except for a few references to Heber the Kenite in the early chapters of the book of Judges, chapters 1, 4, and 5, which were of a time about 400 years before the time of Saul. There is no mention in Scripture of relations between Kenites and Israel in the interim. In other words, from the time of Judges chapter 4 and 5, which is Deborah and Barak, to the time of Saul, for 400 years, there's no mention at all of Kenites in Scripture. So how could Weissman say the Kenites were friendly to the Israelites? On what basis does he have to say that? None. Zero. But rather, Heber was called the Kenite, not because he was from the tribe of Kenites, but because he was a smith. Later, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and around the same time when Paul was made king, we see that there were no smiths in Israel, where it says, now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. Now, it must be said that the descendants of Cain are the first smiths mentioned in the Bible. This is evident where Cain's descendants are listed in Genesis chapter 4. And we read from verse 19, And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. And Ada bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all, such as handle the harp and the organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubalcane, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Now, my keyboard's screwing up. I apologize. Wow. Okay. I'm getting there to you. 
My keyboard is sticking. I don't know why. Tubalcane is actually a compound word. And it means thou will be brought of Cain. So Cain is part of Tubalcane's name. And he was an instructor of everyone who worked in brass and iron, of every artificer. And that is noted here. Moses took care to note that here in Genesis chapter 4. So there must be a reason for his having done this. But even the making of harps and organs requires one to be adept at the vocation of smith. You can't make harps and organs without having a smith, right? So the vocation must have been acquired by the family at least as early as the time of Lamech in order for Tubalcain to learn the trade. Therefore, it is possible that later, in the land of Canaan, the smiths were called Canaanites, regardless of what tribe they were from. Because not only were the Kenites early smiths, but were even noted as instructors of smiths, as it, is, as it says in Genesis chapter 4. So they must have been famous for that. So, so you can easily see how they would have weaseled their way into the kingdom, or sorry, the judges period, um, you know, all the territories if, our ancestors were desperate for weapons and smiths. You know, they could just go, oh, I'm a smith, and they would let them in, and, you know, they would teach our ancestors how to do it, and then they would be, you know, allowed to stay. Well, well right, and, and that, the, the understanding of, um, of the trade of smith and how necessary it was to, to, um, to, to every economy, right? You, you can't have a plowshare or a sickle unless you have a smith. You can't have an axe. You can't fell a tree. You can't have a saw. And they had all these inventions at that early time. Smiths developed these things over centuries. And you can't have any of that. So you can't even have um, anything but the most rudimentary agriculture unless you have a smith. And, and it's difficult to even plant one tomato without having a little iron spade to dig up the ground and to loosen the ground around the plant so that the roots can, can, can more easily get down into the soil. You need a, a piece of metal to do that and, and try doing that with a stick. You could do it with a stick, but it's pretty hard work and it's a lot harder with, with the stick, right? So you sharpen the stick. How do you sharpen the stick? You whittle it with a knife. How do you get a knife? You need a smith. So yeah, even these... in um, like med medieval tribal type society, um, you know, you had the kings, you had the nobles, you had the bards, was it? And then the blacksmith was always up there, you know, a very honored, um, you know, position within that tribe or society. Right. But there's another level. And the level is this. Smiths had kilns, they had ovens, they had to have um, ovens. They made 
bricks out of mud. You can make bricks out of mud by forming them from clay, from, from certain um, compositions of clay, of, of dirt found at the sides of rivers, right? And just drying them in the sun. And they're not the best bricks, but that'll get you started. And then you could build an oven and contain the heat to make it hotter. And once you could do that, then you could make better bricks by drying them in a kiln rather than in the, in, in the sun. So then you make better bricks and then you could build a better oven. But you have to start with something. Well, they used the, they, they, made, they built these kilns in, in order to um, soften the metal and beat it into the shape they wanted to beat it into. And that's how they, the, the trade of Smith, that's how it works, right? And that's about all I know about it. My knowledge of it ends there. But in ancient times, another thing that people required in, in order to cooperate with one another in civilization were the making of seals because that was like your signature, right? And that was basically a cylinder created by a smith and inscribed around it with an inscription that you desired and that would be your signature and your seal should have been unique to you so that people would know it's your seal when they question you and you would get your seal out and roll it upon a piece of clay. It would make the same sort of impression, the same design in the clay. And they knew by that, that that was your seal. And there were actually biblical references to that. So the Smiths had the ovens, right? And the Smiths would make clay tablets and inscribe them and dry them in the ovens. And you would roll your seal across the clay tablet before they dried it in the oven. And that was how contracts were made. That was how covenants were made. So the Smiths became the scribes. They were the early scribes. That's why in 1 Chronicles 2.55, we read, and the families of the scribes, which dealt at Jabez and the Tirathites and the Shemithites and the Sukkothites, these are the Kenites that came of Hamath. If we read Kenite there as Smith, so the scribes of the Smiths that came of Hamath, well, the word Kenite would have been more or less synonymous in that context with scribes because smiths were scribes and scribes were smiths well well that seems to make no sense to me so i prefer the tribal identification there rather than the vocational identification because scribe and smith would have probably been used synonymously at that time or, or in fact if you if you not quite synonymously but if you mentioned a smith I believe that most people at the time would have understood that the smith, if you needed a scribe, you would also go to the smith, right? That's who you would go to, and he would do the inscribing so and, and drying the clay in the kiln. So it seems to me that it makes more sense there in First Chronicles 2.55 to interpret Kenite as Kenite, as the tribal name, rather than as smith. 
I could be wrong about that, but that's the opinion that I lean towards. Let's put it that way. So the descendants of Cain are the instructors of Smiths. And for that, I'm going to take a passage from my commentary on Hebrews chapter 11, where we discuss the feminism of Barak relating to his war against Sisera, the leader of the Canaanites, whom were defeated by Deborah and Barak. Barak was a feminist because he wouldn't go to war without Deborah being with him. He needed a mommy figure, I guess. Deborah was a prophetess. You shouldn't bring a woman into battle. And Barak insisted on it. So, Sisera, the enemy general, was killed by a woman. Deborah told Barak, because you want me to come into battle with you, a woman will get your glory. The woman was J.L., and she was the wife of a man called Heber the Kenite. When Sisera fled to the tent of Heber, seeking refuge, Jael, his wife, took a hammer and a nail and slew Sisera. Now, Sisera's sleeping on the floor of the tent. Jael had one shot to kill him, or if she didn't kill him, or at least very severely disable him, he's going to get up and he's going to kill her. She couldn't take no chances. When Sisera fled to the tent and went to sleep, Jael, his wife, the wife of Heber the Kenite, took a hammer and a nail and slew Sisera with one shot. And this deprived Barak of the glory, which he himself should have had if he were not such a feminist. And this compels us to discuss, and this is what I said in relation to Hebrews 11, this compels us to discuss one more aspect of scripture which is poorly misunderstood which is poorly understood moses married the daughter of a priest of midian however here in this episode in judges one of the descendants of moses's father-in-law is called a kenite this leads many fools like charles weissman here to assume that Moses' wife was a Kenite by race, and therefore that God condones race mixing with the descendants of Cain, nothing is further from the truth. Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite by race of the descendants of Abraham and his third wife, Keturah. Genesis chapter 25, Exodus chapter 2. The word Kenite can refer to the race of the descendants of Cain, as it is often used. But the word can also refer to someone who is a smith by occupation. J.L. was a woman who clearly had experience with a hammer and a nail, or else she wouldn't have been able to kill Sisera in the one shot she needed. She only had one shot. And she had a hammer and a nail within easy reach. How many people have that? And this also reveals that her husband was a smith by trade and not a Kenite by race. In the ancient world, women typically helped their husbands at their trade. So J.L. knew exactly what she was doing with that hammer when she nailed Sisera. That's the only explanation 
for 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 that, for the confidence she would have, for for the fact that she had a hammer and nail within that were easily accessible. All of these circumstances show that this man Heber was a Kenite because he was a smith, not because he was a, of the race of the Kenites. There's another son of Jethro, Moses, his father-in-law, Hobab, and he's called the son of Raguel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. And he's mentioned in Numbers chapter 10. And there it is apparent that Jethro was also named Raguel, but in the Hebrew manuscripts, it doesn't say Raguel, it says Ruel. And that causes confusion, because if you look up where Raguel is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, you won't find it. But if it was translated correctly, Numbers chapter 10, where Raguel is mentioned, it should say Ruel. And he was also called by that name in Exodus chapter 2. So Eber cannot be associated with the Kenites by race, as he was from a family of Midianites, and Moses was never reprimanded by God for having married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro. The very man chosen by Yahweh to bring the law to Israel and lead them from out of captivity was certainly not a fornicator by any means. So Heber was a Midianite, and the texts prove that. He was not a Kenite by race. He was a Kenite by occupation. So with this background, we shall continue with Weissman for one more short couple of sentences, one more short paragraph. Some Bible authorities, he loves to say that, some authors, some Bible authorities, some commentators. Some Bible authorities say the Kenites were one of the 10 tribes of Canaan at the time of Abraham. No, that's what the Bible says. That's not what some Bible authorities say. That's what Genesis chapter 15 says. Others point out that the Kenites of the time of Moses were Midianites. No, one smith was a Midianite. Heber, not the Kenites. The Kenites weren't Midianites. One smith was a Midianite. Weissman is purposely confusing this issue. And he can't read. Where does it say the Kenites were Midianites? It says that one smith was a Midianite. <laughs> Others point out that the Kenites at the time of Moses were Midianites, being descended from a man of Midian named Cain. No, it doesn't say that. Nobody says that. And having nothing in common with the Kenites who dwelt in Canaan. Well, the Kenites were also smiths, as we've shown. But one man of Midian was a smith by occupation. So he went to the Jewish school of smithing, and he got a degree, and he became a smith, just like we all do today, <laughs> just like people do all the time now. They go to some Jew school, and they get a stamp of approval, or, or some yeshiva, and they get a stamp of approval because that's what Jews do. Weissman is absolutely mischaracterizing what we uphold. And then he's saying some Bible authorities say this or that, and others say this or that. Well, well no, let's have some citations and exactly what they say. 
This is called straw man arguments. But he did cite one. He cited John A. Davis, a dictionary of the Bible, where it says that um, the Kenites were one of the tribes of Canaan. But that's what the Bible says. He didn't need a Bible dictionary to say that. That's what the Bible says. Weissman will try anything in order to deny a connection between the Kenites and Cain. But where he says the Kenites at the time of Moses were Midianites, he makes absolutely no sense. There is no scripture associating any Kenites with Israel at the time of Moses. In his own books, Moses lived during the period of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, for most of Deuteronomy. In those books, the only time that the Kenites are mentioned under the singular form of the name as Cain in Hebrew is in the words of Balaam, the wayward prophet, prophet of Numbers chapter 24, who is attempting to prophesy against Israel. And he said, out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remains of the city. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his later end shall be that he perishes forever. And he looked on the Kenites. Now this is um, Balaam saying these things, but the overall subject is still the children of Israel. And he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable and said, Strong is thy dwelling place, and thou puttest thy nest in a rock. Nevertheless, the Kenite shall be wasted. Cain shall be wasted. And he looked on Cain, and that's being spoken collectively of a tribe of people. They're distinguished from Amalek which is also collective of all of the descendants of Amalek, the Amalekites. Nevertheless, the Kenite, or Cain, shall be wasted until Asher, and that's also collective of the Assyrians, until Asher shall carry thee away captive. So we have all these terms are individuals, Jacob, is a singular individual. Amalek is a singular individual. Asher is a singular individual. And if that's true, which it obviously is, then Cain is a singular individual. And in each of these four cases, it's really talking about the descendants of those singular individuals. If Jacob here, out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. If Jacob is a reference to all the Israelites, and when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable. If Amalek is a reference to all of the tribe of the Amalekites, until Asher shall carry you away captive. If Asher is a reference to all of the nation of the Assyrians, then where it says, and he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable. Then Kenites 
is a reference to all the descendants of Cain. Period. All these things have to be equal or they make no damned sense whatsoever. It's not talking about the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Amalek, the descendants of Asher, and the Smiths. It's not talking about the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Amalek, the descendants of Asher, and the unnamed inhabitants of some particular city named Cain, which is what Weissman is going to claim shortly. That's all bullshit. If these other three groups are tribes of people descended from a patriarch, then so is Kenites, period. And we'll discuss that also later on, right? These last two verses are enigmatic. And it is not necessary to take the words, thou puttest thy nest in a rock, literally, as it may refer to a strong kingdom and not a geographic feature. But once it is realized that Israel is still the subject, the reference to captivity is a prophecy of the then-future Assyrian captivity of Israel. And Balaam is saying that the Kenite shall be wasted, which is consumed or diminished, until that time when Israel is taken into captivity. So here the captivity is also prophesied in the words of Moses. The term it's pretty Kenite. amazing he prophesies it that early on. Yes. Uh, everything that's going to happen. No doubt. And that's in the words of Balaam. The term Kenai does not appear again until the book of Judges. A lot of things were prophesied in Moses, which are poorly understood. The term Kenai does not appear again until the book of Judges. After Numbers 24 and the prophecy of Balaam, where the Kenites are definitely a group of people, it doesn't appear again until the book of Judges, which is descriptive of Eber Kenai, the smith who was friendly to Israel at the time of Deborah and Barak. As we have shown, he was a Midianite by race. After that, the word does not appear again for another 400 years, where it once again describes a tribe living in the days of Saul. Yes, yeah, so the constant um you know word kenite that plagues us a lot with um people try to discredit ci all the time they try and play that um you know that it means smith and then it means descendant of cain and they always try and show that israelites were race mixing all the way throughout the bible and um do you believe that um possibly that was done to test us so that you know, Yahweh, in a way, he put these little, you know, sort of traps in the Bible to test us in that way. There is an awful lot of language in Scripture that must have been constructed in that way because Yahweh God is the author of language. He's the author of language. Genesis chapter 10 proves that that must have been constructed in that way in order to test us. And, and our own customs test us. It, it's very clear in the book of Judges that there's a sort of a transformation where Israelites are no longer identified by their tribe, but instead they start to be identified 
by the geographical names of the areas in Palestine that they conquered and settled. And that trend appears in the book of Judges and becomes absolutely manifest in the book of Ruth. And it can be proven through legitimate but alternate, alternate from the interpretations of the King James translators and most modern translators, alternate from the um, commonly promoted teachings of the Jews. It could be proven that Ruth was an Israelite by race, but she was identified as a Moabite by geography. But the circumstances in the book of Ruth prove, and the language, once it's understood, prove that she was an Israelite by race. Even if certain words were interpreted in order to lead people to believe that she was a Moabitess. It's not true. So we constantly have these challenges throughout scripture. And if we know the story and, and we, we know the law of God and we adhere to one consistently strict method of interpretation, which is what we endeavor to do in our 2C line worldview, and that method of interpretation is consistent with the words of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament, which is what we've always endeavored to do, then these things start to become clear. And we see where people identified by geography aren't necessarily of a particular race. And when they're accepted by the children of Israel, according to the law, like Ruth was, according to the law, she wasn't accepted by Naomi. She was accepted by the men of Israel, according to the law, when the law itself excluded racial Moabites. We see that these people were not hypocrites, and we see that Scripture does conform to the standards which God set down in the law. And we see that two seed line is true. When we interpret terms based on a consistent foundation, a consistent philosophy, like I had just done in Numbers chapter 24, where, where three of these groups are races or tribes, then this fourth group also has to be a race or a tribe. And that's the Kenites. And that's a consistent interpretation of all four terms, which James Strong, in his concordance, said that the resulting tribal names, Israelites rather than Israel, Amalekites rather than Amalek, Kenites rather than Cain, are patronymic terms, meaning that the word came to be derived from the name of a father. Like if your name was um, Joseph and, and your descendants are called Josephites because that's the descendants of a particular Joseph. If you are a notable man who did something good for his people and had a lot of children and took care of them and trained them all upright, you would be honored in that manner so that your children would adopt your name. And, and that, that's modern surnames started like that in the Middle Ages. I, I mean, a lot of them until people were forced to have 
surnames, but we always had in, in medieval Europe notable families who were known by a surname because one particular ancestor was a, a, um, a notable figure, a famous man. He may have been a great warrior, a great leader, a great king, a great prince. It doesn't matter. He may have been a great shoemaker. So his descendants retained his name in order to identify themselves collectively. That happened in scripture, but that was the original method of scripture, method of, of, of mode of life in scripture. But in the judges period, people started to become identified by geography. Because the tribal names... Yeah, and you see that like with the... Um... You know, the early, um, just as the Exodus, when uh, some of these rites went to Greek, you have Dada and the Dardanians. And then a few generations later, Tros or Troy, he sets up his own city and they're now called the Trojans. Right. But they're all the same people, but he was just so famous that they started using that name rather than the Dardanians, right? Right, exactly. And when a tribe grows, like, that these scriptures are written internally to the children of Israel. It's Israelites writing out their records for other Israelites and for future Israelites. They're internal. So when you say that half the tribe of Manasseh settled in the land of Moab, which was really only half the land of Moab. So, when this tribe becomes very numerous 200 years later, the people inside of the ring, inside of the children of Israel, are going to refer to that half of Manasseh that lives in the land of Moab as Moabites. Just like in, in the United States, at one time, at a an Englishman in Pennsylvania was an Englishman, and a German in Pennsylvania was Deutsch, or what evolved into the word Dutch, was a German. I was just going to bring that up. And they were distinguished. <laughs> and then that all got lost, and it was, you know, Texas and California and right. uh, Florida. I, I don't know if you later, ever referred to people from their state like that. A hundred years later, they were all Pennsylvanians. And, and then after the um, Civil War, especially, that they weren't even Pennsylvanians to outsiders. They were all damned Yankees. So <laughs> <laughs> they all just got lumped together. And, and, and that's in spite of the fact. And, and New Yorkers became identified as New Yorkers. And even though some of them were Dutch, some of them were English, some of them were French, whatever, it, it, they all became known as New Yorkers. But... Generally, they're, they're Americans to an outsider. Generally, they're Yankees to a Southerner. But if you go to New York, they're New Yorkers or Pennsylvanians. And, and they're not identified by being English or, or German or even nigger today. I mean, they're, they're not distinguished on racial grounds. But in ancient Israel, where one tribe occupied an area eventually 
and internally to Israel, because these documents weren't written for anybody but Israelites, internally to the people of Israel, they were identified by geography. And people would take it for granted that a reference to a Gibeonite, or, or a, um, uh, I'm sorry, not a Gibeonite by the tribe, but a, a reference to um, somebody of Gibeah, such as Saul, would be a reference to somebody of the children of Benjamin, or, or a reference to um, Jerusalem, or a reference to Shechem would be a reference to somebody of the tribe of Ephraim, because Shechem was in Ephraim. So maybe I'm picking a bad example, but the children of Benjamin dwelt at Gibeah, and the children of, uh, because that could be confused with Gibeonites, right? And, and the children of Ephraim dwelt in Shechem. So if you say that so-and-so was a Shechemite, they took it for granted. They must have that that person was a, an Israelite of the tribe of Ephraim from the city of Shechem. So if you say that this woman was a Moabite, that don't mean she was a Moabite by race because these documents are internal to the children of Israel. And this woman was accepted, according to the law, by the elders of the community in Judah to which she was brought who could not have accepted her if she was a racial Moabite. And we see that trend beginning in the centuries before Ruth in the book of Judges, that they were already identifying themselves by geography. Now, at the time of Heber the Kenite, who was a Midianite by race, very clearly, we had a time where the um, Smiths, okay, the children of Israel spent 40 years wandering the desert. How many of them had, had um, developed the occupation of Smith? While the Kenites themselves, the tribe, traveled from place to place, they would still settle down long enough, they had to, in order to establish kilns, to build kilns, and because kilns are something that are very difficult to move from place to place. They may have moved some of the bricks and some of the utensils, some of the components of the kiln from place to place, but you can't just pick up a brick kiln and move it, put it on a wagon. It don't happen, right? So they had to be settled in a place long enough to establish a kiln, at least. Even though they moved from place to place, they had to build kilns, so that they could practice their trade. So, even the Kenite, in, in those accounts, it actually mentions like a place where the Kenites had, had and, and I interpret that as Smiths in those instances, where the Kenites had, had sort of gotten together and Eber departed from the Kenites. So he separated himself from the other Smiths and had a tent somewhere, but he brought his tools with him, which included his hammer and his nails. Why wouldn't you bring your tools with you? They're the basic rudimentary tools of your trade. So he separated himself from the, Kenai, from the other smiths. And that's at a time when there were no smiths in Israel. So he would have been a valuable man to have in Israel. And he was nearby when the Israelites defeated Sisera and the Canaanites, and Sisera fled to the tent of Eber the Kenite, which is Eber the Smith. 
So in historical context, that interpretation makes perfect sense. And we see that the documents prove that Eber was a Midianite by race. He wasn't a Kenite by race. So he was a smith by occupation. Weissman ignores all this and purposely um, uses these passages to confuse people over the definitions or the various usages of the term Kenite. He does that on purpose. He must do that on purpose. He doesn't even really tell you that. He doesn't even think about mentioning that there's 400 years between Eber the Kenite and Saul letting the Kenites go from, from the Amalekites. Even there, were those Kenite smiths? And even there, now, now as we continue, and, and I hope to remember this when, when I start writing my notes for next week, as we continue with this, Weissman will insist that the Kenites came from a particular city named Cain. But what he misses is that city named Cain is south in the land of Judah. But where the Kenites are among the Amalekites, that's across the Jordan River in the opposite direction. So Weissman lies again. And that Cain, that city named Cain, that is found, it's found in the book of Judges, probably didn't even exist because that too seems to be an error in the Masoretic text. And that's where we're going to pick up when we continue this series next week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, when he wrote this book, he must have planned how he was going to try and confuse you know, the Kenites came thing. He must have sat back, thought about it, and had some kind of a plan where he was going to obscure it all and make it all just seem nonsense. Absolutely. You know, he didn't just do this by chance. Absolutely. And that's what he did. And the sad part is that it's so transparent. If you actually know the Old Testament, it, it's easy to, to, to defeat every one of Weissman's assertions, every one of his arguments, it's very easy to defeat if you actually know the scripture and take the time to look at the original words or to compare the King James Version with the Septuagint. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort to do that. It might seem it, and it might be a lot of effort to the person who is not acquainted with the tools. But to me, it's every Christian's duty to become acquainted with these things. You don't have to know them like I do because I do this full time. It's all I do, right? But every Christian should be at least acquainted enough with each of these things so that they would at least um, know and be able to investigate for themselves what we're saying when we say it. Go to those passages. See what they say. Go check the Septuagint. Go check the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible cost about 12 bucks, $12. A Strong's Concordance costs 12 to $15. And, and I'm sure that every Christian who would ever listen to these podcasts spends um, 50 to 100 bucks a month on entertainment and on junk literature that you should spend on investigating these things. And if you spent a hundred bucks a month doing this or 50 in a few months, you would have the, all, all the, um, elementary tools that you would need to check these things out because it, 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 we'd rather have people check things out. 
than just sit here and run our mouths like Weissman did, not supply any, not supply any um, citations to scripture and to support his arguments and, and expect people to believe us. That's not what we want. 2C line is true and we prove it. Okay, thank you for being here. And, and it's been a pleasure. No problem, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of these godless Canaanites. Thanks, Bill. Praise Christ. Praise Yahweh.